Kat and Rebecca and Caleb and Morning, just the practice that they put in over the weeks and everything, just bringing us before the very throne room of God. And just like Kat mentioned, it is Christmas in September. Isn't that amazing? I love it. I, I was actually thinking of doing a 10-week a like best of Old Testament and then putting off the, the Christmas beginning of Matthew until December, but I wanted to start the New Testament so bad. It was wonderful. And so we were able to cover chapter one of Matthew last week and the 400 years of silence, the beginning of Jesus's birth here on the earth. And now we are in Matthew. I need to bring it down. Up. There we go. Okay. The guys in the back work hard too. They have to work harder when I'm on the pulpit. <clears throat> Matthew chapter two, verse one. I love this section because this is unique to Matthew. The wise men, the Magi are unique to Matthew. This is the only time in the whole Bible that we have this story. I, I want to read to you. We're going to read um, all the way up to verse 12 here. And now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born and they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea for thus it is written by the prophet but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men determined from them what time the star appeared and he, he sent them to Bethlehem and said go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they came, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this majestic chapter, as we approach this majestic story, as we approach this majestic story that we read every single year, and in so many ways it can become this uh, tradition that we, we gloss over at times, Lord. And just the privilege of being able to celebrate Christmas any time of the year, just like we can celebrate Easter any time of the year, knowing that your birth is so important to who you are. Emmanuel, God with us here on the earth, and behold him. The privilege is what we sang earlier tonight, the privilege of beholding him, just as the Magi did, just as the shepherds did, 
just as Mary and Joseph did, to behold Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, salvation in their very hands, in their very hearts, Lord. And so as we approach this chapter, these chapters tonight, Lord, speak to us clearly, speak to us with power. Lord, I thank you for these that are gathered here, those that are online, I ask you bless them tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. The subtitle of Matthew is Prophetic Power. Because uh, as you've seen, just even in this chapter and also the previous chapter, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels. It's the privilege of knowing this beginning of the New Testament where Matthew is reciting from his own memory a lot of these events that take place in uh, uh, the book of Matthew. And you remember that Matthew was one of the original 12 apostles. He actually walked with Jesus for three years. Only two of the Gospels were actually written by apostles of Jesus Christ that actually walked with him for those three years, Matthew and then the book of John. The book of Matthew is very similar. It's what is called a synoptic gospel with Mark and Luke. But this chapter here, this story that we're reading here in the book of Matthew is found only in the book of Matthew. It, it is unique to Matthew. Some of your Bibles might even have references underneath the subheadings where it shows this section is also found in Mark or Luke or John. But in chapter 2 here of Matthew, this is unique to Matthew. Look at how it starts out there in, in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to uh, Jerusalem. This Greek word here is the word magi, or those that were astronomers, if you will. They studied the night sky, and this is different than an astrologer, okay? Very different. An astrologer attributes uh, glory and some sort of divinity to the stars, where an astronomer studies the stars and attributes it to a divine being. And there's a difference. These wise men, they probably came from Persia. They probably came from former Babylon area. They came from the east. In fact, if you go to Daniel, you find a lot of these prophecies that Daniel himself spoke to the Babylonians and the Persians some 570 years before. In fact, these same prophecies about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the Messiah being born in Judah, was being looked at by the Persians because they regarded Daniel as one of these magi or wise men. In fact, look in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. It says this, and, and, and by the way, we covered this probably about seven months ago. It says, now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sins and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel. Isn't that interesting, by the way? The same angel that goes to Mary and Joseph is the same angel that speaks to who? Daniel. 
these prophetic, these powerful prophecies that we're seeing being fulfilled in Matthew are being seen by these Old Testament prophets. How important is the Old Testament to the New Testament? It's amazing. And Matthew, he brings out all these different prophecies, all these different Old Testament passages. Look at what it says there, continuing in Daniel chapter 9. Whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. By the way, this is one of the most smartest men on the planet, by the way. And what is Gabriel doing for him? Giving him understanding. This was a guy who at a very young age was able to learn another language, learn a culture within less than two years' time, and be able to regurgitate it and proficiently use it before the very king of the known world at that time. And now he's revealing him this understanding of prophetic, powerful prophecy that is going to be proclaimed and fulfilled later on in the book of Matthew. Look at what it says there in verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. These prophecies that Daniel is receiving from Gabriel are going to be fulfilled in the future, 500 and something years in the future in the book of Matthew. And who's going to be there? Magi, to be able to record it, to be able to prove it, to be able to see it and to anoint the most holy. Isn't that interesting how it's used here? Most holy. The term that's used for God himself. Emmanuel, as Isaiah says. But it doesn't stop there. And Daniel being this very exact, this very exact wise man, this counselor for multiple kings, and even multiple kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, all, all these big powerhouses, if you will, he gives very exact timetables. Look at what it says there in verse 25. Now therefore, and understand uh, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 72 weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and suffering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, 
even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And if you take those 70 weeks, those 62 weeks, and then the seven weeks that happen after the end, and then also this period of the 70 weeks, and we talked about this about seven months ago when we were studying Daniel chapter 9, you get the exact day when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And then for these wise men, as they're studying these prophecies, as they're looking at these timetables, and then to know that the Messiah, the most holy one, whom Daniel, one of these Persian wise men or magi, had talked about, and then to see this star in the sky. And what did they do? They follow the star. And by the way, we, we're going to find out that it took them probably a, a period of about two years to get to Jerusalem, a, a long distance. And of course, they have all these camels, they have all these gifts that they're going to give to this majestic, most holy one. Now, it's also interesting, as we see here, that as they probably came from Persia or this other area, studying astronomy, studying the placement of the stars, that this star is unique. I was looking up some of these things. I remember back in 2020, there was a, a, a combination of certain planets that were coming together, and they called that the Christmas star, Jupiter and Venus. And, and they said, oh, maybe that was what happened 2,000 years ago. But if you look at the story, this is so exact the star actually hangs above the very house where Jesus is living at this time. This is a supernatural event that defies even the natural order. Does God want people to see his son and behold him and see him and be in awe of him? And this is what the Magi do, by the way. Continuing on there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Why is King Herod troubled? You guys all know the answer. Why is he troubled? Did any Magi come to see him? No. Did any people that were wise or people from a far distant country bearing huge amounts of gifts come to see him? No. They're coming to see a king. And what does this mean for Herod, by the way? The one that was sitting on the throne as a, a despot, is a person who not even full Jewish blood is one of these kings that is put on the throne at the mercy of Rome itself, not even his own authority. It all comes from Roman power that backs him with their authority. And then to have these wise men come looking at the star, following the star for years, looking for the king. Look at how it describes it here in verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, the Messiah, Christ. Okay, in the Old Testament, the Messiah is normally found as the word anointed. 
But in the New Testament, it's the word Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. Okay? It's his title, who he is. Okay? Uh, many people confuse that. His, his dad would have been Joseph, so his last name would have been Jesus bar Joseph, if you were to do his lineage. But Christ being the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one for whom the Jews had been waiting for thousands and thousands of years, and even people from a far-off country, by the way, the Magi coming to Jerusalem to see the Messiah that one of their own a long time before himself had prophesied about. Look at the prophecy here. Verse 5, so they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. By the way, there's the, all the chief priests. It's not just some of them, every single one of them. Herod doesn't know the scriptures, by the way. Who does he have to ask? He's asking the chief priest. He's asking all these religious uppity-ups, all these people that are supposed to know the Old Testament, and they do. They quote this verse from Micah chapter 5. It says here, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. What is the most holy one going to do? What is the Messiah going to do? What is the Christ going to do? It says that there in the last part of that verse. He's going to shepherd his people. I want to read to you the context here from the book of Micah chapter 5. And again, I, I love the way that Matthew brings in the Old Testament. And I love bringing in the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because we're seeing from the perspective of a, a person who is Matthew being this tax collector, this go between the Jews and the Romans, explaining these texts that to the Jews was part of their culture, part of their Torah part of their upbringing, but for those that had no clue about the Old Testament, why is Jesus so important? Why is the birthplace of Jesus so important? Why are these prophecies so important? It's Matthew that brings these out. It's Matthew that explains these texts. In fact, in Micah chapter 5, uh, verses 2 through 5, we read the context of this. And by the way, Micah is one of the most amazing in terms of prophecies of the Messiah. Look at what it says there in verse 2 of Micah chapter 5. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and, and you hear this every year, by the way, every year you hear this, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from everlasting, from the what? Ancient days, the ancient one is coming. The one who has always existed is coming to the earth. That is so powerful. Look at what it continues to say there in verse 3. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth has born a child, then the remainder of his brother shall return to the sons of Israel, he shall stand and do what? There it is again. Shepherd his flock. 
in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be... What is the Messiah coming to bring to the earth? All these prophecies and these wise men coming, seeing the star, being led by the star, bringing these gifts with them. But by the way, every single Christmas, people always ask the same questions, whether it's Sunday school or whether it's just people in general. How many wise men were there? How many wise men were there? Do we know exactly how many wise men? Do we even know their name? No. There's, there's uh, hints, if you will. There, there's myth about this event that takes place. But we don't know their names. We don't even know how many of them came. We don't even know how many camels there were, right? Look at your nativity sets. Just a side note here. We, Emily loves nativity sets and we were looking for this olive wood nativity set and we were able to get it but it was missing one thing it was missing the camel okay we had to go all the way to israel just to get a camel that was olive wood okay but now she has one camel but there's probably a lot more than that right and the same thing with the wise men where we get the tradition of the original three wise men if you will comes from the text that we're going to be reading here in matthew because how many gifts did they bring? Yeah, three. Look there in verse 7, then uh, Matthew chapter 2, it says, then, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now, this is very important to understand, okay? The context, the wording of this section is extremely important in understanding the timetable of the book of Matthew. Look at what it says there in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young what? And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him. And all of you know he's lying through his teeth, right? You all know. You all know. He's not telling a single truthful word. What is he thinking in the back of his mind? I need to figure out the timetable in order to know who to kill, who to exterminate. It probably was about two-year timetable between when the star first appeared and when uh, the wise men arrive in Jerusalem to view the child, if you will. And we're going to see the proof of that when we get to verse 16 here. But in verse 9, look at this. And by the way, we see in this context that this couldn't be just a natural star, okay? If you look up the stars in the sky, and, and thank God, depending upon where you're at and how clean the air is and, you know, how high up you are, we can see a certain amount of stars. But imagine these magi looking at the stars, the patterns in the sky, and then seeing this one star that is more visible than all the rest. And this star leads them to a specific point, even a specific house, this verse says. And now when they had heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was 
Isn't that very specific and, and very divine? By can, can you imagine being able to see this this star that is specifically over the certain house, and it stops over it? By the way, it stays over this place. But by the way, where was Jesus born? You guys all know this. We learned this last week. He was born in a manger, right? Which was a a, a stable, which was part of an inn. Now they're living in a house, okay? So that means they've moved. That means they're no longer destitute and living amongst all the cows and the donkeys and everything else, the sheep. They've actually are living in the house, but they're still in Bethlehem at this time. This is important to understand. They're still in Bethlehem at this time. Look at what it says there. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, uh, Joseph, whether he, he built it himself or whether they purchased this house, uh, they're living in a house in Bethlehem. When they came in, they fell down and they worshiped. They had opened their treasures. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Now, who's the one that's holding this baby? It says it right there, Mary, his mother. This is the privilege of understanding the scriptures. They journey all this distance, not only to give gifts, but to do what? Fall down before him. To behold him. To see him. To be in awe of this baby. They worship divinity here on the earth. Wow. Does that floor you? That should just send goosebumps up and down your back. The privilege of knowing these wise men who had studied not only their own culture, but also the stars and also other cultures as well. They come to this foreign place after long travel. And not only do they give the gifts, but they give their worship as well. Gentiles coming to worship the king. A foreign people coming to worship the Messiah. Did Jesus just come to save his own people? Did Jesus just come to save the Jews? No. He came to save the Persians as well. He came to save those that had prophesied and also seen prophecy themselves in foreign countries. Does God work in miraculous ways, by the way? They were there for 70 years, and did God use that 70 years to the fullest putting people in key positions in the Babylonian and then in the Medes and the Persian Empire to show that he is a mighty God. And also converting kings, by the way. And then these same wise men, some 500 and something years later, come and they worship at the feet of Emmanuel. Divinity here on the earth. It's interesting, these, these presents as well, if you will. Again, we don't know exactly how much 
they were. We find out later on and when they moved to Nazareth, when they go down uh, to Egypt, that they had to have stuff to live on. Did God know perfectly what they needed to live on? Oh, yeah. Uh, look at the very first thing that's given to uh, Jesus, to Mary, to Joseph, to this young family, gold, right? One of, one of the treasures that even today we value. There, there's this standard for a monetary system, this, this gold of value that goes up and then it goes down. But the standard of gold is very high. Why? It's something that's valuable, right? It's something that the Persians brought with them. By the way, gold is also very heavy too, right? They, they had to bring it with them on this journey and they, they give it to Mary and uh, the child. What's the next one here? Frankincense. Have you ever smelled frankincense before? Frankincense is one of these, what, what was called an incense, if you will. It, it, it's one of these, the, these fragrances that if you're not used to it can be very overwhelming. But it was part of a formula that was used in the very temple itself. Frankincense and myrrh. That they were part of the incense that was put before the very holy place in the temple. This would have been one of the ingredients that were two of the ingredients that would have been used to in the worship of God. That that very incense that would go up in the temple itself as a symbol of the worship of God that was continually being proclaimed by the people of Israel. Have you ever been to a, a Catholic church? They, they, use, they use frankincense and merge, bent upon uh, the, the, the church, but normally they, they put it into this little orb, if you will, and they, they, the reason why I know I don't, I don't go to a Catholic church, okay? I have an uncle that's a priest, so, and he's amazing, by the way. He flings that thing. He, it's one of those things that there is symbology behind it that is really amazing. It's just how it's used, unfortunately. But there is a purpose for the incense. And if you really understand it, it is so beautiful. The prayers of the saints going up as the symbol of the frankincense and the myrrh. And they're giving it to a baby, by the way. The, the, these divine gifts that are supposed to be attributed to kings, they're giving it to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and they know who he is. These foreigners, these Gentiles, but does anyone else know? Does Herod care? The chief priests, do any of them come? No, none of them come. None of them come and worship. His own people don't come and see the prophecies being fulfilled. It's foreigners that do. It's going to be shepherds in the book of Luke that come. These, these people that are just living out in the field. But the normal people, the, the chief priests and the kings, they don't come and worship Jesus Christ. It's the Magi that do. By the way, what's the definition of wisdom? From the book of Proverbs. What's the definition of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. Did these wise men fear the Lord? Did they know him? Yes, they did. 
It's proved, by the way, in verse 12. It's proved, by the way, in verse 12. Who talks to them? And being divinely warned. Who comes and talks to these wise men? And it was the star. We don't know if there was actual words when they first came, but they saw this star. This is actual words. This is divine warning telling them, do not trust Herod. Go a different way. And they had, or excuse me, and when they divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country. Another way, a different way than what they'd come. Not going through Jerusalem, not going through the main, the hub, the capital of Israel, but going a different way back to their own country. By the way, again, how long did it take them to get there? And how long is it going to take them to go back? This is a long journey just to come and give these gifts and fall down and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How worthy is your God to behold him, to be in awe of him. Verse 13, when they have departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child, destroy them. This house that they've built, this house that they purchased, this house that they have to pick up and, and move. And did God divinely provide for them, by the way? Knowing what would happen. Isn't that amazing? The providence of God, right? Now, another interesting thing is every single time we see the angel come, Gabriel come, to talk, it's always to Joseph in the book of Matthew. In fact, three times the angel comes to Joseph, only to Joseph in the book of Matthew. In the book of Luke, we're going to see Mary. Uh, but it's in the book of Matthew, nine times Joseph is mentioned, the father of Jesus, the, the earthly father. It, it, remember, it's the genealogy of Joseph that we see at the very beginning of the book of Matthew. And that's very important. Even though he wasn't his blood, even though he wasn't from his own lineage, it wasn't his child, it wasn't him that was the real father, the blood father of Jesus, did Joseph care and provide and protect Jesus in his young age? Yes, he did. He, he, he was divinely appointed by God to protect Jesus when he was young. In fact, it, it's Joseph that's going to receive these visions or these dreams that are coming to him to provide for the family. This, of course, is the second time that we see Gabriel coming to Joseph. But by the way, in all the other gospels, the, the second most is, is Luke with only four. More, more than twice the amount of times Joseph is mentioned in the book of Matthew. The, the importance of this, this father figure, if you will, in the life of, of Jesus. What else did Joseph do for Jesus? Not only protected him, but he also gave him a career as well. 
the the one who was the carpenter's son, right? The one who learned carpentry from his own father. Continues on there in verses 14 and 15. I, if you really read this, you really understand this. The care that God gives for his son providing a father, an earthly father. When he rose, he took the young child and his mother by night, departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Again, prophecy being fulfilled. Every single one of the prophecies of the Old Testament had to be fulfilled in Jesus and Matthew. He's bringing out all these powerful prophecies that are being fulfilled. Verse 16, is Herod happy? That First of all, that he finds out there's supposed to be another king that was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years before, that, that there was these wise men, these Gentiles that were coming from another area that were laden down with all this gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they were coming and they wanted to worship this king. And the jealousy of Herod comes out, and what does he do? And Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its district. Extermination. By the way, when, when did this last happen? You guys know. All the way back in the book of Exodus, remember? It was the two-year-old or the males that were born that were supposed to be killed as soon as they were born, right? It was all those males that were part of the Jewish nation. In fact, in this prophecy that we're going to see here, it goes all the way back to the fact that there was this, this heart-wrenching cry, and it's happening again in the Jewish nation. Because all the baby boys are being killed. Now, in this, it's more localized in this area. It's Bethlehem and the, the surrounding regions. By the way, when Jesus comes back, it's interesting to know this, that he would have been one of the few males that would have been his age. Why? Because they were all killed. They were all killed. And then to understand that this region, this Bethlehem region, but also the districts around Bethlehem as well. It was Herod being thorough in his extermination of this king. Just mass killing. But did Joseph protect his son? Did God protect his son? Yes, he did. By the way, that's where we get the two years because Herod would have figured out the travel time, if you will. That's why he was being very specific. We don't really understand that at the beginning of the, of the story, but now we do. Why was he asking all those detailed questions of how long it took to get here? Why, why was he asking all those questions before uh, of what, how was your journey? How long did it take? He was trying to figure out how old this boy would have been, how old this king would have been. What does he do? He 
exterminates them all. He kills all the boys. Verse 17. By the way, this also was a prophecy. This also had to be fulfilled. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's interesting that comes from Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet. That, that was the prophecy that comes from the one who cried himself, the weeping prophet. When, if you were here when we were going through the book of, of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is one, the only uh, out of all the prophets out of all the major and uh, the minor prophets that actually has two books to his name. He has Jeremiah and Lamentations. Though that seven chapter, or that, excuse me, that five chapter book that is just full of heart-wrenching cries, lament, lamenting the people of Israel. And he's quoted as one of these prophecies that's being fulfilled at this time. Normally, when we think of prophecy, we think of the good things, right? But is there also prophecies that are also heart-wrenchingly true as well? That there was going to be this extermination that would take place of the Hebrew male children. Verse 19, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead. This is the third time. This is the third time we get the, the message from the Lord. And who does he come to? He comes to Joseph again, okay? In fact, this is the last time we're going to see Joseph in the book of Matthew. We're going to see him again later on when Jesus is 12 years old, but we're not going to see him after that time period. It, it's interesting that you see here that they'd been living in Egypt. We don't know the exact amount of time, but they've been living in Egypt in another country for this amount of time from their family, from their friends, from their nationality, growing up in Egypt for this certain amount of time. Then the angel comes and he tells Joseph, the one who is seeking the life of the child is no longer alive. Go back to Israel. And this also, of course, was prophesied. Every single one of these exact prophecies. Now you understand just a little glimpse of why prophecy is so important and has to be so exact as well. Because not only is his birthplace given, but also where he grew up is also given in the Old Testament. Look at what it says there in verse 21. Then he arose, took the young child, his mother, came into the land of Israel. And where do they live? But when he had heard that Archelaus had reigned over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. How, how specific is prophecy? Not only his birth, 
but also where he was going to grow up at as well. And, and again, we only see this in the book of Matthew. Uh, all these prophecies that are so specific, so exact, could only be fulfilled by one person, the Messiah. And when anyone disagrees, whether they're Jews or not, it doesn't matter. Is the word of God specific? Are the prophecies powerful? And are they fulfilled in the book of Matthew? The other gospels as well. By the way, just as a, a side note here, since we're not going to see Joseph anymore, we see Jesus leaving his family at the age of 30, right? He starts his ministry at the age of 30, okay? Now, wh why did Jesus not start his you know, ministry at the age of 18 or, or 21 or, or 20 or something like that? Uh, there, there's a very specific reason. Be because as the oldest child, even though he wasn't the biological child of Joseph, the biological child of, mother, of Mary, did he have to care for his mother and his siblings? Did he have to provide for them? Yes, he did. As the oldest one. And, and this kind of precludes whether it's whenever Joseph passed away or, or whenever he died, that there was this certain time period where when Joseph died, that, jo that Jesus now had to take over for providing for the, the family. He, he was the one that provided for the family. And we see this even to the very end of Jesus' life when he's there on the cross, his last earthly responsibility, giving that responsibility to one of his best friends, John. To care for who? Mary, his mother. As, as the responsibility of the oldest son, the care of his mother would have fallen upon him. And they give that same responsibility over. And, and we understand this because Hey, Joseph wasn't there at the foot of the cross. Joseph wasn't uh, a part of any of the life after Jesus, after the age of 12. So sometime in that period that, G or that Joseph would have passed away and then Jesus would have assumed this responsibility. And then at the age of 30, when his siblings, his half-brothers and sisters would have been old enough, they would have taken over the responsibility of providing for uh, their physical mother as well. It's also interesting to note that even though Joseph didn't share a single drop of blood with Jesus, that he was a part of his life. That it would have been him that would have provided the spiritual nourishment for Jesus in his youth. It would have been Joseph who had read the Torah to him. It would have been Joseph who was the one that when he rose and when he uh, lay down, when he sat and when he stood up, when he would leave the house, that he would bless his family. That he would care for his family, right? The, the, the privilege of knowing that it was Joseph that was there to physically care for Jesus too. To provide for him and his family very last verse of chapter 2, it says this, He came to dwell in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
Now, this is different than what we hear other certain terms called Nazarites. Okay, this is very different. Okay, Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. Normally, you think of when you see a picture of Jesus, normally, what does he look like? He has, has long hair, right? And that's because some people can fuse these terms. Nazareth is a town. Nazarite is a vow. Okay, there's a difference. Nazareth was a town where people actually lived. You can even go to Nazareth today. A, a Nazarite was a vow that was taken by a certain person, whether it was lifetime or for a certain period of time. This is where you get Samson. This is where you get certain parts of the, the New Testament where Paul and Timothy took a, a Nazaritic uh, vow. This would have been John the Baptist who we're going to see in the next chapter. For a Nazarite, they grew their hair. They, they, they could not cut their hair. But there was something else that they couldn't do as well. They couldn't eat anything from the grapevine. They couldn't have wine. They couldn't have grape juice. They couldn't have raisins. They couldn't have grapes, okay? Anything from the vine, okay? It was part of this vow that they took as a Nazarite. And this now is the segue into chapter 3, because when we're introduced to John the Baptist, he is a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, okay? He's a Nazarite. He, he's been given this vow from birth to be set aside as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And you see it in the very first verse of chapter 3. It's one of the most amazing stories that were introduced here. Now going from the birth of Jesus straight away to the prophecies that John the Baptist is going to be speaking from his mouth. And there is such a distinction between the two, by the way. Look at what John the Baptist does. And, and by the way, this is, this is really Old Testament here. Look at what he does. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, remember when we were in the book of Micah, this actually comes from Micah. This doesn't come from Isaiah. But I, Isaiah was part of this prophetic group, if you will. And what does John the Baptist sound like, by the way? Did he have a voice? Again, fulfillment of prophecy, too, by the way. Did he have a voice? Yeah, those fire and brimstone type of guys. Look at what it says there in verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This is not a seeker-friendly sermon, by the way. This is a guy that is dressed not in a suit, but in camel's hair. He, he's eating the, the, the land itself, literally honey, and these locusts that were considered one of the few kosher insects, if you will. 
Can, can you imagine this, by the way? There, there's an amazing movie it's called John of Patmos, and, and it's really a, a one-man play. And he describes this event here as he comes out and he's chewing on this stuff in his mouth. And, and then he starts picking his teeth and he says, I picked up this habit of, of eating locusts. And the, but the problem is the, the little legs get caught in your mouth. The little legs get caught in your teeth, right? Imagine eating locusts, but, but what is he eating it with? This is the interesting thing. He's eating it with honey, right? You get your pure protein and you get your B vitamins, right? From these two ingredients. Whether he dipped it in, I don't know if he dipped it in. He might have, I don't know. That would probably be the best way to eat locusts. I don't know. Drown it in honey, right? But you understand that these locusts, they were considered kosher. That, me that means they were clean to eat by Jews, okay? A and going all the way back to the book of Leviticus, you find four different types of locusts that were allowed to be eaten by the Jews. Th th this pure protein that was abundant in the wilderness, that was abundant everywhere, and they could just, whether it was cook them up or, or eat them, and then also this honey that was also considered a, a literally a, a natural energy source. These B12 vitamins that he would have gotten eating in the land. The other thing that you notice about John the Baptist is, and we learn this from the book of Luke. And again, it's the reason why is because we see the book of Luke from the perspective of Mary. Elizabeth was her cousin. So we also see the lineage of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born from a high priest. He, he could have been in the priesthood. He could have been uh, a high priest himself. But what is he doing instead? He could have been wearing robes and a turban. But what is he doing instead? He's wearing camel hair. Eating locusts and wild honey. And who is he talking to in the very next verse? It says it there, verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, be to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Harsh to the religious leadership. Extremely harsh, by the way. What does he call them? Vipers. He calls them serpents. He, he calls them as, as sons of Satan. He, 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 you're acting like the one who deceived Eve so long ago, and you're spreading your lies to the people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones that he himself probably would have gone to school with growing up as a priest. Growing up as the son of a high priest, by the way. His dad, Zechariah, being a high priest. We find that also in the book of, of Luke as well. But how does he address the common people? And, and this is the way it also is with Jesus, too. And we talked about this last week. He, they always address the religious leaders with this wrath that is to come. That this You should know better than what you're doing now because you have the law that reveals your sins and you're ignoring it. You're being hypocrites, right? Or whitewashed tombs. Here he calls them vipers. 
verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we are Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Who is it that says that verse? Who is it that says that phrase? It's not Jesus. It's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist that says it. That they were, they were relying upon their lineage. They, they were relying upon, oh, I'm a, 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 a priest. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Sadducee. I come from the line of Levi. I have this uh, religious pedigree. Uh, we, we've always gone to that church. My grandma, my great-grandma, and whoever, they always went to that church, right? Our heritage comes from Abraham himself. What does John the Baptist say to them? What does he say? I can make these stones. God can make these stones in the sons of Abraham. It, 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 it's dependent upon how you respond to the word of God that determines who you are children of. Right? It, it, it's how you respond to the word of God. Do you repent of your sin? Do you actually obey God? Or is it just some uh, a, you know, badge or pedigree that you have? This is why it's so important as we go through the New Testament and we see the Old Testament being fulfilled right before our very eyes, by the way. Why it's so important in the lives of not only John the Baptist, but also Jesus as well, to who they were. Because John the Baptist was also prophesied. He had to come. He prepared the way for whom? For Jesus. Verse 10. By, by the way, we're going to be looking at this next week, but I, I did a whole sermon just on, I love character studies. I love John the Baptist, one of those character studies that, that is just amazing to look at. We'll see a little bit more about that next week. Uh, but as you go through this chapter, as you go through the various parts where John the Baptist is mentioned, uh, by, by the way, Jesus only preaches a sermon about one person. His sermons are always about God. His sermons are always about who God is and how he reveals himself to the people, how, how, how they need to repent and, and change their ways. But there's only one person that Jesus mentions by name in a sermon, and it's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. Look what it says there in verse 10. And even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire and brimstone. This is the cry of John the Baptist as all these people, it says all of Judea was coming out. All of these places were coming out to repent of their sins. And he clearly declares that there's one more mighty than I, that I can't even, as Luke says, I can't even untie the sandals. And this is, it says, I can't even carry his sandals. I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals. Of the one who is coming after me. His winnowing fan is in his hands. He will thoroughly clean out 
his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with fire. There's a word that we're going to be talking about next week that comes from this passage. It's this word baptized. It's this word baptized. Okay, this is your homework assignment. This word baptized in the Greek, it's actually the word baptizo, okay? And it comes from, a, it literally, it goes all the way back to 200 BC to a recipe book, okay? The word baptize means to immerse, okay? And we'll go into this more next week, but it's this recipe of pickling, okay? It's taking a vegetable that is bland, if you will, cucumber or a zucchini or, or some sort of other uh, vegetable and then immersing it into vinegar and something happens to that vegetable. And you all know this, by the way, uh, a, a cucumber can be very bland, okay? And when you immerse it in vinegar and you immerse it in this liquid, what does it become? Fickle. The, the understanding that this word baptize is the word that's used in this recipe that comes from 200 years ago, a guy by the name of Nicander, who writes this recipe using these exact same words that 200 years later are going to be used by John the Baptist and also John as the term to baptize. And John, of course, his recipe is repentance. Jesus is transformation. Literally transforming the life, changing the life of the person. So hopefully next week you'll come. You can also look it up. It's called Are You a Pickle? Studying the Life of, of John the Baptist. It's really good. But yeah, read chapter 3, chapter 4. It's beautiful. Even though John the Baptist is on fire, even though John the Baptist is, is preaching these, these fire and brimstone messages, it's fulfillment of, past, of prophecy. Prophetic power being fulfilled in uh, their very uh, midst. And Father, uh, tonight, as, as we too, we, we have to examine ourselves. Because it's so easy as people that go to church. We, we go to church on a Wednesday. Wow, we're really religious people. We're missing all these things that we could be watching. We're missing the debates or a certain program that we could be watching or doing something else. And I'm religious and relying upon that religiosity. Lord, please forgive us. Just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Lord, it depends upon our response to you. Lord, help us to have that same desire that John the Baptist had. Of, of a living a, a life that is wholly devoted to you. A life of transformation, a life baptized in you. A life that's been changed. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you so much for the book of Matthew. How powerful it is and the prophecies that are being quoted over and over again, every single one that had to be fulfilled, and, and just to maybe even just get a glimpse of this as we, we go through this, the power of prophecy. Lord, as we, we leave this building, as we go our separate ways, Lord, I ask that you would work in our lives, convict us, change us, Lord, so that we're not the same as when we came in here, so that we're not the same as we were earlier this week, Lord. 
we would look more and more like you. To have that same desire to be like you. Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family. Use us for your glory tonight. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.